Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and New York City. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear how Enterprise Ireland is supporting Irish entrepreneurship and the ones to watch in the world of startups. I'll chat to a US veteran about his drone company and developing tools for defense. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Now, as I mentioned, I'm coming to you from New York today. I was in Austin earlier in the week as part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year CEO Retreat. If you want a full rundown on all that has been going on this week, plus some of the incredible finalists, make sure you download this week's Down to Business with Bobby Care on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. But essentially, this programme is in its 25th year and it shines a light on some of the fantastic companies we have in Ireland. There is 24 finalists in the programme and the awards are later in the year. But Jenny Melia, who's the Head of Technology and Services Division in Enterprise Ireland, is one of the judges and I caught up with her in Austin. We spoke about the challenges and opportunities facing startups in Ireland at the moment and we started by talking about the importance of programmes like the EY Entrepreneur of the Year when it comes to celebrating Irish business. Well, first and foremost, I think, uh, Jess, it's a celebration of Irish entrepreneurship. You know, and the ma- amazing Irish businesses, homegrown businesses, you know, that have developed over the years and are going on, you know, to win and compete uh, successfully in overseas markets. So that's the first thing. And in terms of then their firing power back home, you know, their spend in the local economy, the jobs on the ground, and that really important balanced regional development where it's jobs across the country, not just jobs in the city. Um, so in terms of the programme, that's the actual, the first piece. Well, the second piece then is the learning element of the programme and you know the learning element of the programme is around bringing the entrepreneurs together to learn from each other Uh, people who may be in the same sector or different sectors people who may be at the same or different stages uh, of growth and you know are going through you know particular challenges and so on in terms of what they're taking on but then there's all the insights that the programme brings in then from an international retreat like this so you know we've just spent a fantastic three days uh, in, in Austin now listening to industry experts entrepreneurial experts experts in the business schools uh, in the capital you know accelerator uh, here in Austin so it has really just been an all-around activity in terms of celebrating success uh, peer-to-peer networking and really understanding you know what's happening in international markets I have been to the awards uh, for the last number of years. I usually go along, tag along on Bobby Kerr's uh, coattails. And what I'm always struck by, and I've said it for the last maybe eight or nine years, I would hate to be a judge because it's very, very difficult in the, in the categories that we have to, just, to crown one winner because every single story is remarkable in its own right. As a judge, you know, can you give me a bit of insight into what you're looking for and what distinguishes a company from already a very distinguished group of companies. 
So I think the first thing, and when I, I joined the judging panel in 2019, and I'd honestly have to say this year, and I know you say it every year, that, you know, what a difficult year it has been. It was really, really challenging this year. So we have three categories. We have emerging, established and international. And, you know, to work your way through from 80, 90 applications down to 24 and then you know you're working your way down to three and then down to one. You're absolutely right. But to your point, there's a lot of experience around the table in terms of, you know, repeat entrepreneurs, in terms of experience across the sectors. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of awareness of what entrepreneurs go through and what's involved at a personal level as well as a business level. So that's the first thing I would say. I think that is one of the things to keep in mind when you're looking at it's not a business competition as such as in, you know, just how well is the company doing in terms of what's on the balance sheet. This is the entrepreneur's story as well. And it talks, you know, to the culture that they have developed in their company. It talks to the challenges they've had along the way. I mean, you read applications and the entrepreneurs will talk through businesses that they've had previously that didn't work, you know, and all of the learnings that they've taken from them and what they have done. And I think uh, as well, then it speaks very much to uh, their social agenda and their giving back. Uh, to the local communities, uh, how they're giving back to other entrepreneurs. In some cases, they're mentoring. In some cases, they're investing and they're doing all of this while they're running their own business. And it does make it challenging then in terms of the judging. And uh, I guess, you know, that's where we have a great uh, chairperson uh, in Anne Herity. And, you know, a lot of discussion then around the table about what really resonates with people. Very strong focus uh, on female entrepreneurship and uh, in recognising the number of female entrepreneurs, you know, coming through the competition. And it was something that really resonated with me. You talk about the awards night in Paris Court last year. The very first category you passed as you were walking into the room was the emerging category and uh, we had five female-led companies there and it's just fantastic you know looking at this is the the pipeline we have coming through now and they will go on to be you know the established and international companies of the future. Mm. I think it's also worth acknowledging that there's probably a lot of established and international companies led by women who probably haven't considered putting themselves forward because that is something where you know, women probably aren't as quick, they're not as great when it comes to shouting about their stories and so on. What does it take to enter, if you are an established company, if you've been around the block a few times, why should you consider or should you consider putting yourself forward or, you know, putting your business forward to get involved in this programme? Yeah, look, so we would have gone out to, you know, companies, you know, last year that we hadn't seen come forward for the programme, you know, and... uh, strongly encourage I think is the best way to put it strongly encourage them to put an application through I think it's very important that you know the stories feedback through the media about the value add you know from the competition and what entrepreneurs are getting from it because you know probably what entrepreneurs are thinking about is if I put my name in for this you know what is it going to mean for me in terms of what I have to take on and how it's going to impact you know on my time in the business and so on and this is where it's really important you know for entrepreneurs to be stepping back and like we say you know working on the business rather than in the business I think role models are very important and you know we've already talked about female entrepreneurs Amy Connolly was a fantastic role model 
for female entrepreneurs last year and is a fantastic role model. And um, I know we in this this year in the competition, uh, just some feedback we got from somebody who was in the competition and they had a comment at the end that one of their friend's uh, daughters was now setting up a business because she had seen what uh, Amy Connolly uh, had done and could do and what she was planning to do and look Amy is just going from success to success now in terms of where she is at the moment so there is that piece around socialising the stories socialising the value of the programme and uh, and how powerful it is in terms of being part of a group of entrepreneurs who can help you work through your challenges you know identify solutions and uh, and you know bring you to retreats like this where you get to see as well the best of what's happening internationally and you have that outside uh, outside view rather than just constantly looking into the business. Yeah 100% and speaking of Amy Connolly we have to acknowledge she opened uh, her store on Grafton Street this Absolutely. week which is an incredible achievement and she is one to watch. There's been many of us who've been watching her for, for some years now but she is just killing it so it's great to see her going from strength to strength. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Enterprise Ireland and the work that you do to support entrepreneurs and companies as they look both outside and inside Ireland. Um, Tell me a little bit about the role that you play and at what stage businesses can engage to get support and develop and build their businesses. So our role, very simply, Jess, is to support uh, homegrown companies to create jobs in Ireland. And we do that through a combination of financial supports and non-financial supports. The financial supports, um, it can be, you know, in the form of equity investment, where we're going into a company and front-loading the money in an early-stage company. Uh, pitch book, uh, only in the last couple of weeks, uh, I recognise Enterprise Ireland as being, you know, the largest investor in Europe in early-stage companies in terms of deal count. Uh, the FT last year acknowledged Enterprise Ireland as uh, the uh, most prolific investor in female-led companies in the last five years uh, in Europe uh, and France in second position there behind Ireland in both of um, both of those scenarios. Um, in terms of getting the companies in and getting them started, that's the first step. The next step then is to help them scale. We've had 5,000 companies in our portfolio right through from pre-seed to uh, SMEs that are selling on the home market and getting ready uh, to move into international markets right through to our companies that are in international markets and in fact are what you could call homegrown multinationals. When we look at our figures for last year, uh, the companies have really come through, the the Enterprise Ireland client-based companies, because I think we do have to recognise, you know, there are you know sectors and industries that have had a particularly tough time in covid but when we look you know at the results for last year it was the highest return in terms of exports for the enterprise ireland client companies at 27.3 billion it was the highest uh, creation of net jobs 11,000 net jobs created across the client companies and right across the country. 68% of those new jobs created uh, outside Dublin. And probably one figure that doesn't get mentioned so much in the media is that those companies then went on to spend 31 billion in the local economy last year. A massive return 
to the local economy. So when we invest in companies, we invest directly in companies, but we also then invest through improving the regional infrastructure. It could be through, you know, local incubation centres, you know, co-working hubs, uh, money going into the local universities uh, and colleges so that they can go on and support the industries and work with SMEs. We invest in the seed and VC funds and, you know, since January this year, there's probably in the region of around 250 million in funding gone in through the system through seed and VC funds that Enterprise Ireland would have supported and of course what we're doing is you know we're making that investment to leverage you know external funds coming into the system. One thing I'm um, interested in is businesses at the moment and for the last two or three years who were potentially going to expand Uh, whether that is within Ireland or externally they might have put it on ice because of the uncertainty which is completely understandable but I think that uncertainty hasn't lifted yet and I think a lot of people are reading headlines that are a bit scary they're looking what's going on from an economic point of view just from a political climate from a climate point of view there's so much uncertainty are you sensing that from the businesses at different stages um, you know right across the spectrum that you engage with on an ongoing basis? Um, I think it probably, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. I think it depends on the sector, you know, that you're in, in terms of, you know, um, whether this is a sector, you know, that's very heavily dependent, you know, on energy and what they're facing now in terms of, you know, the current crisis. Uh, It could be, you know, in the tech sector, the biggest uh, issue for the companies, you know, over the last two years has been the talent and skills uh, crisis for those companies. You know, we'd have several thousand vacancies at the moment for all of the, you know, the jobs created in place. We've several thousand vacancies. What sort of jobs are they? Um, They would be uh, software engineers, uh, data scientists, um, roles in terms of uh, the AI, machine learning uh, sector or companies and really the challenge therefore is you know that Ireland is so good in this space now you know we have a very strong uh, multinational footprint it's that dynamic uh, between uh, the multinational needs and uh, the job you know creation there and then our SMEs uh, and startups being able you know to compete with those companies but, you know, we've done a lot, you know, on this CEO retreat here in Austin, you know, around the importance of culture in companies, um, the importance of, I think, innovation in companies and people feeling, you know, they have that, um, I guess, rope and permission, you know, to innovate and uh, the importance of really, really strong leadership the importance of values alongside vision and of course what we're doing then you know I guess you know in terms of kind of if you want to describe in terms of a more operational element is we have a full-time team in Enterprise Ireland now working on policies for SMEs you know advocating for our SMEs and our disruptive startups you know at government level 
um, if you look at you know the work that we've done over the years in terms of and with other stakeholders you know across the ecosystem as well you know advocating you know for changes um, around the EIS scheme there's more work to be done for sure around the share options you know this comes up over and over again with the entrepreneurs you know to improve that risk reward for our entrepreneurs in Ireland because as someone said to me a few years ago at a meeting you know we talk about nine to five jobs they said entrepreneurs aren't nine to five it's the other way around entrepreneurs are five o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock in the evening and absolutely you know they give it at all and they go home on a Thursday and a Friday evening carrying a massive weight on their shoulders in terms of you know all of the people in the company uh, who are depending on them and their management team and all of the families behind those people behind every job in that company is a family and that's something that we do need to remember because like we're great at shouting about the success stories and as you said you know some of the the finalists in uh, the entrepreneur of the year they, they might be serial entrepreneurs they may have had companies that failed crashed and burned and now they're successful and we just focus on the success there are people facing very tough times at the moment whether it's through uncertainty or um, you know financial issues maybe things haven't come back after covid where is the the light in the at the end of the tunnel at the moment for entrepreneurs who might be in that slight limbo period so um, for for our, our startup entrepreneurs, I think one of the challenges now for the very early stage companies is, you know, getting that early stage equity investment. And, you know, Enterprise Ireland is very much, you know, in the frame for helping those entrepreneurs in terms of, um, be it through, you know, feasibility grant support we have, be it through some of our small equity offers. Um, and in terms of linking them in, you know, to other people as well in the system who can, you know, advise them, mentor them, people who have, I guess, it's fair to say, worn the boots of entrepreneurship and have experienced some of those challenges. Um, I think for, for the other companies, you know, it speaks to the importance of being involved in networks being involved in networks, be it on a regional level, be it in something like the EOY, um, our own Leadership for Growth alumni. Um, There is that piece around entrepreneurs, and, and they've talked about it this week, in terms of being able to pick up the phone and talk to each other. You know, and work through work through challenges, and in fact, some of the entrepreneurs working together, you know, to help themselves get out of a bind. I think, in terms of optimism, and, and and I do think we have to be careful, you know, when we're talking about challenges, that you know we do, you know, give recognition as well to how well, like I said, the tech companies and our manufacturing companies now have come through COVID, and um, they've come into the energy challenge in a, a better position than they might have had if the COVID supports hadn't worked as well as they, they've had. You know, we are doing work with our parent department and there's a lot of work happening at European Commission level in terms of getting supports now into companies right across Europe to help them deal with what has just been, you know, an, an incredibly fast challenge to hit us on the back of COVID. And um, what I would say to companies, you know, whether they're a local enterprise office client, whether they're an Enterprise Ireland client, stay close uh, to the agency and come in and talk to us, you know, if you are going through a difficult situation because, you know, we 
will be able to help you in some shape, even if we're not able to help financially. You know, we are able to help, like I say, with signposting and making connections for companies. And in some cases, there, there is financial support there as well. But it's important to uh, stay engaged and don't feel that you're on your own, you know, solving this challenge. You're not, absolutely not. Mm. I, I just want to finally talk a little bit about the exciting trends that are going on in the world of tech because innovation never stops. And if we look back over the last five years, never mind 10 years, um, there has been so much change, so much innovation coming from Ireland alone. We have some of the brilliant companies here. Is there anything in particular that you are excited about when it comes to you know, some of the companies that are passing through your doors and you think, oh, that is one to watch. Yeah. So we have um, we have a company here with us now this week and I've heard some of the other entrepreneurs talking about them and uh, it's a, it's actually one of our high potential startup companies um, that uh, came, came through the Enterprise Ireland BioInnovate programme. And so what they have basically brought together is uh, an expertise and skill set in cardiovascular knowledge with AI in terms of coming up with a solution for um, cardiovascular experts to use in the hospital system to treat and diagnose people much more efficiently than they are at the moment, resulting in a better outcome for the patient and resulting in uh, cost savings you know, for the healthcare system. That's an exciting project where you see two technologies coming together and I think where you see the power of kind of when you you think outside the box a little bit uh, in terms of um, you know bringing together people who in a program like BioInnovate that they might have had the opportunity to meet. We had a group of buyers from the US in Ireland in the last two months in the cyber security space and you know we have a great cyber security uh, cluster of companies coming through Ireland. really a dynamic market here in the US for those technologies and solutions and in fact one of the things that would have come up is in the context of remote working and hybrid working and the extra cyber security challenges you know that may uh, throw up for companies and again you know solutions that may be needed there we've a strong cluster in talent tech and you know we've had a cluster now coming through in edtech as well and to some extent boosted by covid like covid did accelerate the growth path of some companies and that should be recognized as well at uh, digital health great cohort coming through in digital health and when you see the challenges that the healthcare communities you know will be facing and global challenges not just irish challenges everything i've talked about They're not Irish problems, they are global problems. And what that means then is that's producing, you know, sizable market opportunities for our Irish companies. That's what helps them to scale. And that then in turn puts the boots back in the ground in Ireland, driving their innovation agenda and driving their job creation agenda. And that's what we're about in Enterprise Ireland, getting in behind them. That was Jenny Melia of Enterprise Ireland speaking to me earlier this week. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, I'll meet the US veteran who's building drones for defence. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk, coming to you this week from New York City. 
And earlier in the week, I was in Austin, Texas. And on Tuesday, I went to a startup incubation hub called Capital Factory. It is a stunning building in downtown Austin that plays host to a number of businesses, particularly those looking to develop technology and tools for the US Department of Defense. Dark Hive is one of those companies and I caught up with the CEO, John Goodson, who told me a little bit about his own background and how he came to develop drones for defense. Um, I actually spent the uh, early part of my professional career in the military. I was a uh, combat technician with the uh, SEAL teams, so uh, working in special operations, did four combat deployments to Afghanistan, and you know, throughout that time, utilized a, a lot of drones, you know, pretty, uh, pretty extensively different models uh, and different scenarios. And one of the things that I observed uh, as I was uh, working in the military was that the platforms were uh, really unreliable. They were difficult to pilot, uh, they crashed quite frequently, and it's not any fault of the platforms per se. I mean, the environment was really unpredictable. And that really led to this perspective that, you know, is really the foundation of our, uh, really the foundation at Darkhive of you cannot make the platforms reliable because the environments across the world are too unpredictable. But the capabilities those platforms provide, no one would dispute their value. So you have to figure out a way to make access to the capability that those platforms provide reliable. And the way that you do that is by getting to uh, more volume of lower cost systems that can be deployed and essentially have um, overlapping, uh, provide overlapping access to that capability so that when one or two go down, it's not a big deal because there are 10 or 20 more to take their place. And that was really, um, you know, what shaped and formed the approach that we took at Darkhive. I know little to nothing about the military. Obviously, I have no experience of being in it, but I know a bit about drones and I know that they can be super beneficial in so many different uh, arenas, but certain factors have to be right from a consumer point of view anyway. So, you know, a lot of people get drones for Christmas and they'll know that you can't fly them on a windy day and you need to have a phone that can run the software and all these elements have to be completely right. From a military point of view, what elements are needed what conditions need to be there and what are the biggest downfalls that cause those issues that you guys are now trying to rectify? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think that there are similarities between what you were describing in the commercial you know, consumer market when it comes to drones and what the military experiences. Um, not everybody asks for a drone for Christmas, right? Not everybody asks uh, you know, to and or has enthusiasm to pilot drones. Um, but there are so many different groups in uh, you know, commercial industry as well as in defense who want access to the capabilities that drones can provide, but they don't necessarily want to become drone pilots. And so one of the biggest limiting factors has been traditionally that the organizations that are developing drones, both government and industry, are very focused on uh, developing them for people who ask for the drone under the, cre- under the tree at Christmas. Mm-hmm. They are designed by drone enthusiasts, for drone enthusiasts, for specialized skill sets, and those aren't the user communities that can benefit most from, the, uh, from their use in field. There's this large swath, you know, 99% of the military who want access to those capabilities, but because those uh, platforms are not designed with them in mind, 
they're designed with the specialist in mind, you wind up with that 99% left wanting for a capability they can actually reliably use or easily use in the field. So I mean, that that's certainly one of the challenges. And then the other challenges is really vertically integrated or you know what we call stovepipe systems, where um, the software that a company develops plus the hardware that that company develops, they're only uh, interoperable and integrated with one another. Mm-hmm. They are not extensible, they are not accessible by from a military perspective, everything that I used in the field all the time. They weren't interoperable with the radios that I took in the field. They had their own special radios. They weren't interoperable with the software applications or other things that I already carried in the field. They had their own special controllers, their own special software. All of this doesn't sound like a lot sometimes when you think about it from a consumer perspective, but when you think about it from the perspective of, I already had 120 pounds of gear that I was carrying in the field an extra 20 to 30 uh, adds up very quickly and is a reason for me not to carry that thing into field when it has all of this additional specialized equipment. It doesn't leverage what I'm already carrying, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. And so what was your starting point then? So you kind of, you had your problem, which is what the 99% of entrepreneurs start with. They have the problem they're trying to solve. What was the first thing to go down on your post-it note of potential solution? Oh, great question. Um, I wish I was. Uh, I wish I was as brave as a lot of uh, entrepreneurs out there who, you know, uh, fresh out of, uh, you know, uh, fresh out of, uh, you know, graduate school or fresh out of the military, who just said, "I have an idea. It's a billion-dollar idea. I'm going to go make it right now." I was not that person. I went into industry first. I got a job with a defense contractor and I just learned as much as I could. And at a certain point that, um, that nagging problem just wouldn't go away. That perspective that had kind of formed in my mind during all of those combat deployments about the problem really, the problem with drones, the problem with uh, uncrewed aerial systems. And at a certain point, you know, as the fall of 2021, me and my partner put our heads together and we said, I think it's about time that we try to do something about this. And that's when we started the company after I'd been out for six years, had worked in industry for six years. And really that's one of the things that's led to, in in my opinion, you know, any success that we've had so far to date is that we know this industry. We know it incredibly well. And I, and I think that's the reason why, um, you know, things have gone so smoothly for us to date. Uh, what integration or you know is there dialogue with the with the military to see you know would they realistically use your solution or are there you know boxes that you have to tick that you mightn't have been aware of when you were on the front line but you need to have ticked from a back end point of view oh man that is an excellent question um so yes absolutely you you have to and this is something that i learned and and i think a a critical missing element of many companies that are trying to do work with um you know the military and defense is that um whether it is the large programs you know the big department of defense who publishes some of their requirements and things that they would like to see a lot of folks look at that and they say okay well that is what the military end user needs and they they focus on that they focus on building to that requirement but meanwhile there are huge communities of users who are most connected to the most immediate uh, challenges that their communities are facing. And those requirements are not making their way up to these these big publications, these big requests for information that the Department of Defense will publish. Those 
those that are published are sometimes based on outdated requirements or they're you know targeting you know more long-term strategic goals and they're all important you have to engage both you have to track both and you have to realize that ultimately at the end of the day the only community that really matters is that end user so to your question 100% you have to engage with the user community uh, directly and that's something that we do extensively we've done it from the beginning we've validated all of our concepts everything from the function the software application the form of our drone all the way through to you know what the price point needs to be in order for them to uh, adopt it and purchase it at scale okay so very stupid question what is the difference between your entire product and service versus what I could go out and buy down the road right now? Oh, great question. Yeah, so um, a few things. Uh, one is the the autonomy that we have built into uh, our software package and into our drone is uh, a little bit more advanced than what you'd be able to buy um, uh, from most drones in the commercial market at a similar price point. Um, and then the second one would be uh, the form and the function. So there's a lot of things about our drone that are unique in terms of their design that it looks uh, a little bit different than other things that you might be able to find out there. And the lastly is the camera package. So I mean, we have, you know, the average person doesn't have any need for thermal, uh, thermal, <laughs> thermal imagery and other things like that, but we do because our users uh, often do go out and, you know, in the middle of the night or have to go into a dark room or other things like that. And they need the ability to still see even when there's no light. So those are the, those are the big ones and maybe a little bit, well, definitely a little bit more rugged than what you'd find, um, what you'd find off the shelf. Some of the issues that uh, crop up when it comes to drones are firstly the noise level, because although they are quiet, they're not silent. And I'm sure that makes a difference, a massive difference when you're out in the field. And the other challenge is battery life. Are they things that you are tackling or are you trying to get all the other elements nailed down before you go after those two? No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'll answer your, uh, you know, your second one first. I mean, endurance, you're, you're absolutely right, is one of the biggest challenges. So in endurance for drone platforms is, uh, and, you know, uh, better batteries, um, you know, that, that have more longevity at lower weight. Those are all, those are all challenges that uh, the entire industry is trying to address. And so striking that proper balance between, you know, how much flight time you can get at what weight um, and what size. Um, what we've been very fortunate to um, to see is that, I mean, even with some of the leading manufacturers that are out there and some of, you know, on the commercial market side who have incredible volume, our, our form, our size, and our endurance is pretty close. I mean, okay. the best performance at, at the weight and the size, uh, you know, similar to ours, I meaning for like a, a DJI drone, we are within about three minutes of their flight time, which is pretty impressive considering how new we are, how junior we are. I mean, that's, that's uh, we're, we're pretty happy with that. And then, um, I'm so sorry, what was the other? The, the noise level. Noise yeah. level, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so we definitely want, we want to come in right around the same noise level as um, some of the commercial off-the-shelf drones, mm -hmm. because at a certain point, again, you know, cost is a, is a big consideration for us. At a certain point to get um, as silent as some of the military communities uh, would like us to get, you start creeping up into some uh, some uh, more specialized motor design, more specialized rotor design, some things that really start increasing your cost because they're produced at small scale. So there's a trade-off there that um, we think we've dialed in a right around the right decibel level for um, uh, for the noise that we create with the drone. Um, we could get more quiet, but our cost would go up. And so we're kind of right at that threshold right now. I suppose sometimes, and just, to acknowledge it, the conversations about the military can be a bit uncomfortable for Irish people because we don't fully 
It's not something we're faced with on an ongoing basis. And we see the news headlines and we see the impact of conflict on a human level rather than a political level sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know, obviously you've served, you have walked the talk and all the rest. Creating a tool for battle, do you have a stark outlook of, you know, I want this to be a tool for defence or is it something, a tool for combat? And I don't know if that's too nuanced a question. No, no, I, I think uh, you're hitting on something that's really uh, was, was a point of discussion for me and my partner at a very early stage. We had to make the, I mean, Ukraine, is a, Ukraine has been um, obviously um, a, a key talking point within the drone community and looking at the extent to which drones that can produce and deliver like lethal effects are being used heavily. They are, um, they are really um, being pointed to as one of the things that has enabled Ukraine to disable um, more uh, expensive and valuable uh, Russian uh, mobility platforms, all this type of stuff. And so there's this temptation to say, well, I mean, that's a really big opportunity. We should, we should go do that. But me and my partner put our heads together, we talked about it, and we decided at the very beginning of the company that we were never going to, um, we were never going to put lethal effects on our drones. And the reason for that was, is, uh, is, pretty, is pretty straightforward. If we are successful in creating the type of user experience that we're targeting, which is one in which anyone can become a drone pilot immediately, you know, the same user experience you have with the latest application that you downloaded on your phone from the Play Store or from Apple Store, whatever it might be, if you have that kind of user experience associated with interacting with robotic systems, you can really change the way that, that people in a myriad of different uh, roles and walks of life complete tasks on a daily basis in their personal life, in their professional lives. And then even beyond that, um, in the humanitarian assistance and disaster response world, there is so much value that these systems can provide and we lose that opportunity to do that kind of good in the world the minute we put a bomb on our drone. Because as soon as you're known as the company that puts bombs on your drones, you lose your opportunity to support all of those other communities you lose the opportunity to provide that kind of good in the world. And so that's the reason why we said defense to your question. Mm -hmm. We said situational awareness, alerting, and essentially giving people access to information that they can't see when their feet are on the ground. Mm -hmm. That's really where we wound up on it. Mm. I don't know what's out there at the moment in terms of blocking the signal or intercepting or anything like that. How sophisticated is the defense against the defense of drones? And are you trying to preempt what might, what else might come down the track on that front? Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you have to be thinking in that, in that way because, you know, adversaries that we might um, and are currently um, engaged with or our allies are engaged with have incredibly sophisticated means for defeating drones. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to have that in mind. So the ability to deny uh, GPS, to deny uh, you know, global positioning systems, to deny uh, communication links, all of those things, um, they exist out there. And so that's one of the reasons why on the, on the software side and on our hardware side, our platforms are designed to be able to pilot themselves without GPS, to fly in a manner that, to uh, avoid and confuse uh, systems that are designed to detect them and defeat them uh, through kinetic means. Those are all things that we have. We certainly have on our radar, and our you know the way that we're designing our drone from the beginning has been with that in mind. That was John Goodson, CEO of 
Darkhive. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to take a closer look at the 405 million euro fine handed down by the Irish Data Protection Commission to Instagram. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk, coming to you this week from New York City. And coming up just after six o'clock here on News Talk is our good friend, John Fardy. John, what's on the menu this week? Thank you, Jessica. Now, the cult movie, and it really is a cult movie, Clerks, is back for Clerks 3. If you know about Clerks, the original movie, it was this very wry, quirky idiosyncratic movie from Kevin Smith set in a convenience store. People adored it. Uh, It has this kind of cult following and it's back for its third outing and possibly its final outing. Clerks 3, as I say, and I'm talking to the two cast members who play the clerks themselves, Dante and Randall, played by Jeff Anderson and Brian O'Halloran, and they are talking to me on this week's show. I'm also talking to the director and producer of a fascinating sweet new movie on Netflix called I Used to Be Famous, all about a a former boy band star who's a bit washed up now, who strikes up an unusual friendship with a drummer uh, who's on the autism spectrum. A sweet, sweet new movie called I Used to Be Famous. I'm talking to the guys behind that. And Mark Ryle will be here with the week's new releases. And of course, I'll be letting people know about all the TV they should be watching or indeed skipping. Excellent stuff. Well, all of that is coming up on this week's Screen Time just after six. Now on Thursday, the Data Protection Commission published the results of its inquiry in to Instagram and handed down a 405 million euro fine. This is a very significant sum of money. I think we can all agree. Uh, It's the first of its kind because it relates to the data of children. And Helen Dixon spoke to Kieran Cudahy on Thursday's Hard Shoulder to explain the nature of the inquiry and indeed that very hefty fine. The case that we announced the results on today is about Uh, is about the Instagram platform and it's about a feature of that Instagram platform called a business account. Uh, A researcher from the US got in touch with us called David Steyer. Uh, He pointed out that any user on Instagram free of charge and with a couple of clicks could switch their account into a business account. Uh, And he noted that a lot of teenagers in particular were attracted to do this because it gave you better analytics on who was engaging with your content uh, and so on. Um, And a key feature of this business account is that it automatically posted your contact details, so your mobile telephone number and or your email address to the world at large. And so we found a series of infringements on foot of an investigation that we conducted over two years and the end result uh, is is the fine that you mentioned earlier, but not just the fine. Importantly, corrective measures where we're going to supervise and ensure over the next three months that Instagram completes out all the actions required to ensure better protection for, for child users on the platform. Now, I think they might suggest that they've already done that. Uh, I know they, they, this inquiry focused on old settings that we updated over a year ago, no less. So our investigation started in 2020. Over a year ago would be, I suppose, around 2021. So, so it is correct uh, what they say uh, during the course of the investigation. They did make significant changes to the user registration process But what our decision notes is that there are a couple of actions still outstanding that they haven't completed that are important to close out the loop on Mm. this. 405 million 
euro. I mean, you're closing in on half a billion quid. It is obviously significant. So significant, Meta are going to appeal it. Though one of the criticisms people often make is, you know, dropping the ocean compared to their overall revenue uh, and and what it comes back to is is another criticism that you'd be used to hearing that your office and others they don't have sufficient teeth to really go after these companies in a way that would hurt them but I think that's an extraordinary assertion, really. This fine is 0.35% of turnover. Remember, of a maximum of 4% of turnover. And it's just one investigation that we have into the meta group of companies. We've already this year imposed an uncontested fine of 17 million on meta. 225 million is contested last year on WhatsApp. And we've more in the pipeline. So what other... What other uh, types of sanctions could there be? Well, of course, there could be sanctions on directors and so on. And that's also a constant debate about whether you introduce laws that that, that go deeper or further. Mm. Again, this is what we've got in front of us. This is what the legislators said was the appropriate suite of measures that we should have recourse to. Yeah, that's Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner, speaking to Kieran Cuddy earlier this week. It's interesting to see what will happen uh, when Meta appeal that fine. And indeed, what other cases are in the pipeline, as Helen referenced there. I would love to hear what you think. Do you reckon, you know, executives should face consequences when big tech or indeed any business is found to be in breach of GDPR? Uh, You can drop me an email, techtalk at newstalk.com. Now, that's it for this week. I want to say a huge thanks to all at EY for making us feel at home on the annual retreat, the CEO retreat as part of the Entrepreneur of the Year programme. I want to say thanks to Bobby Kerr for taking me under his wing. And uh, we had a fantastic week. I would highly recommend you head on over to the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud and you take a listen to Down to Business because Bobby met some fantastic people. Uh, I'm back with Shane and Kira on Monday's Newstalk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.